All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, the title of the message today is The Amazing Race. I'm not talking about the TV show where teams of two travel all over the world trying to figure out clues, experiencing foreign countries, enduring mental and physical challenges, all hoping to win that million dollar prize. When I say amazing race, I'm talking about the kaleidoscope of God's people all over the world that make up the human race, and even more specifically, what has been called a third race that is made by the grace of God in Christ. And this is what we're gonna talk about in today's message. And I wanna begin our time together with the end in mind. And when I say end, It's actually the beginning from an eternal perspective. The Apostle John receives a grand vision in the revelation that is given to him of a future time when all of redeemed mankind is gathered around the throne of God. Angels are there. The host of heaven is there. Those whom the scripture calls the 24 elders are there and listen to how he further describes it. Revelation chapter five, starting in verse nine. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open up its seals for you were slain. They're singing to Jesus, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. It's because Jesus saved them. They're lifting up their voices. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a beautiful picture of God's desire and design coming together. It's a vision of what is to come, and it is going to happen. People from every tribe, every language, every nation, They look different, have different life experiences, grew up in different cultures, but they're all doing the same thing, worship, and it's all directed toward the same person, Jesus. And it's this end goal of God and vision of this future that should fuel our present day living. It's why we do missions. It's why we go to the ends of the earth. It's why we plant churches. Because we believe every person needs to hear the good news of Jesus and those that hear it will receive it and ultimately they will be with us in eternity one day worshiping around the throne. As theologian John Piper put it in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. The end goal of God, people from everywhere, worshiping him for all of eternity, it doesn't just fuel our present day living in the sense of being on mission, but it should also awaken within us a desire, a longing to work for and pray towards the church today reflecting what will be the reality of this future kingdom that's mentioned in Revelation. I liken it to an appetizer, if you will, at a great restaurant. You know what I'm talking about? Now, that shouldn't be talking about lunch at 1120, but I'm gonna do it, all right? You go to a great restaurant and they bring out that hot bread, man, and it's good. And then you order an appetizer 
and it's good. And you just know that meal is coming. If the bread was good and the appetizer is good, then that main course, it's really going to be good. Well, this is sort of what the church should be like. We as Christians should be praying for, striving towards, working like crazy to give this world a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. To bring it a little bit closer to home, champion for us, people should leave our church that visit here with a longing for the eternal. They come in and they may not can even articulate it, but what they see is different people from different places representing different cultures, have different life experiences, in our case speak different languages, people have different likes, different list likes, different political opinions and persuasions, and yet they also see how we love one another, how we prefer one another, how we serve one another, treat one another. They see how we're unified around the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and in the resurrection, they see how we're unified around a shared mission of showing and sharing his love with a world that desperately needs it and they leave with a picture of eternity in their hearts, inwardly longing to have what we have, to know what we know. This is our desire. And in many ways, Champion Forest, we do just this. In many ways, we as a church are ahead of the game, so to speak, as it relates to fulfilling this Revelation chapter 5 vision. I can't tell you how grateful I am personally for previous leadership who worked so hard for this vision of diversity to be a reality. They prayed, they labored, they staffed our local church to reflect the kingdom of God, and you as a church embrace this vision, and in many ways, what we're talking about today has become a reality here. Did you know that in our Spanish congregation alone that will meet after this hour at 12.15, we have 26 countries represented just in our Spanish congregation? Amazing. There's no telling. There's no telling how many countries are represented in this service. Besides our English and our Spanish services, We have a deaf service. We have a life group that is a Vietnamese language life group. We have a Farsi language life group. What we have here at Champion Forest is a beautiful tapestry of people that look different, speak different languages from different places around the world. But we come together to worship Jesus and live on mission for him. It's incredible. However, we must continue to work, to be diligent, and to make sure that we're doing everything in our power on a personal level and on a corporate level to continue reflecting the future kingdom reality that is to come. That means we have to be on guard. We have to be watchful. We have to have the power of discernment on high wisdom from above to stay the course and make sure that our differences never divide us. I can tell you this is what Satan wants. He loves division. 
He loves strife. Loves chaos. Prides himself in creating disunity. He is the author of prejudice and racism, of evil itself, and as the Bible states, he is out to steal, kill, and destroy. I take that literally and figuratively. He wants to destroy the unity and the mission we share. And so what I want to do in this message today is I want to show us how we can fight for this Revelation 5 vision and fight against this enemy that wants to thwart and destroy any semblance of it. Now to do this, we have to pick up where we left off last week. And that was making sure that we understand that man is created in the image of God. We call it the Imago Day. And if you remember what we said, if you missed any of our messages, please go online and listen to them. But we underscored the fact that in Scripture, it is undeniable. Any reading of Scripture, we learn that people are loved by God, known by God, and created by God. Therefore, they have value. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the uh, heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It needs to be underscored. It needs to be highlighted. It needs to be repeated. I'll put it in a sentence that's easily digestible. You'll see it on the screen. Each person is made in the image of God. And therefore, each person has equal worth and dignity. Racism in any form is antithetical not only to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to the very doctrine of the Imago Dei. And so I want to say at the outset of this message, as pastor of this church, as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in as clear as terms as I can, anything that cheapens, demeans, or despises another man or woman made in the image of God is sin, period, and it needs to be repented of. We value life inside the womb. We talked about that last week. And we value life outside the womb. We're dealing with that this week. As author and theologian Art Lindsley writes, it is contradictory for Christians to walk into church proclaiming the worthiness of God while cursing someone who God created in his likeness. How believers treat people, and I would say value people, is an indication of how they value God. When we value God, we will value those created in his image. All of those created in his image. Now, this is a biblical worldview series. And as we just read in Genesis chapter 1, we see that there was only one race. And it had nothing to do with the color of skin because the Bible doesn't speak to the color of skin that Adam and Eve had. We have no idea. If it was important, Scripture would have spoke to it, but it doesn't. One race is seen in Genesis chapter one, and that is the human race, one blood. 
And the call, the command to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter one, verse 28, the first part, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is exactly what they do. You read the creation account, getting into Genesis chapter four through six, Adam and Eve multiply, they have children. You read in these same chapters that because of their sin in the garden, Genesis chapter three, there is this imputed unrighteousness that is passed down to their children. Cain and Abel inherit this sin nature. And Cain, because of his sin nature, jealousy is in his heart. He raises up against his brother and murders him. You get to Genesis chapter six and listen to how the crown of creation, mankind, is described in scripture. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. If you want to trace racism back to its root, look no further than the sinful heart of man. This is where it begins. It's the same place all sin begins. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know what happens, Genesis seven and eight, we're just taking a short journey through scripture so that we can have a biblical worldview to see race and people as God sees them in Genesis seven and eight. He judges the earth in the form of a flood. Um, I know we like to paint rainbows and pictures of animals on our nurseries and our kids' rooms. Just make sure when you're sharing that story, you share the G-rated version, all right? Scar them for life if you tell them why that rainbow's really there. God sent judgment. And in Genesis 10, this is where it gets really good. Noah is saved from the flood along with his family. By the way, this is a perfect picture of Christ in the Old Testament. The ark represents Christ. When we trust in Christ, he locks us in. He protects us. He saves us. He delivers us through the waters of judgment. Noah's family is saved with him, and Noah had three sons. Now listen to Genesis 10, because this is where we witness different nations and peoples coming from. Again, we're one race. Genesis 10, 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now you see in verse two, the sons of Japheth and his descendants, and look at how it reads in verse five of Genesis 10. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. In verse six, we read of Ham, rather unfortunate name, but we read of him and his descendants. And look at how it reads in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Then verse 21, we read of Shem and his lineage. And to look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 31 and 32. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from those, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So I want you to see this map we're gonna put on the screen here. And if you wanna know where the different races came from, so to speak, this is where. The sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham and his descendants, as you can see, settled in the North Africa region. Shem and his descendants, for the most part, settled in the Middle East, Mesopotamia, Arabia. And the descendants of Japheth settled in Asia Minor and more toward what we know as the European countries. 
And so this is how it all started. The Apostle Paul would even mention this when he is in Athens. And he sees that the people are worshiping an unknown God. And Paul says, I'll tell you who that unknown God is. That's the creator God, the God of heavens and earth who created from one man, every man. Listen to chapter 17 of Acts, verse 23, the second part. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, Paul said. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man, Adam and Eve and Noah to his sons, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God made man and woman in his image. He made every single race, ethnicity, people group that we know of, that we're aware of. And listen to this, we mentioned it last week. It needs to be repeated again this week. Not only did he make them, but he loves them. He loves them. Let me just show you how he loves the world. Even from the beginning, just as we journey through scripture, you get to Genesis chapter 12. And what happens? God calls a people to himself. This is the call of Abram, the setting apart of the Hebrew people. They're referred to in the scripture as God's treasured possession. And no doubt did God have a unique covenant relationship with them. But this covenant wouldn't just be a blessing to them. But through them, God promises all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. He's talking to Abraham, i.e. Israel. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? It's a sneak preview of Jesus. Jesus would come from the line of Abraham. And by faith in Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They will one day be gathered around his throne, worshiping him. This Revelation 5 vision is a fulfillment of a Genesis chapter 12 promise. We see God's love for the world when he sends Jonah the prophet to the pagan Ninevites to preach a message of repentance and they turn from their sin. In Psalm 96, we see that in our worship of God, it ought to motivate us to go and share his glory with the nation. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. You turn to the New Testament. And Jesus models this love for all peoples, breaking down all racial barriers. He serves a Samaritan woman. A hated and despised race in that day. And he gives her living water. He heals a Roman centurion servant. In the eyes of a Jewish man, those centurions were as dirty as a leper. And yet he heals. Jesus casts a demon out of the daughter of a Canaanite pagan woman. He speaks to some Greeks who are on a spiritual search that come to him before he's betrayed and arrested and ultimately put on the cross. And then Jesus goes to that cross. And he dies on that cross, not just for the Jews, 
but for the Gentiles as well. He dies for everyone, regardless of race or ethnicity or language or color. He died for all because he loves all. And I just want you to think about, just want you to think about what Jesus accomplished in his death. It reversed the curse of Genesis chapter three and where sin brought separation from God and separation from one another, Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection brings reconciliation, reconciliation to God and the ability to reconcile with one another. That's why I love the cross, like the image, the symbol. So every time I pull on our campus, I look at that cross at the top of our tower and I love that it's there high in the air for all to see. It's a vivid illustration of the reconciliation ministry of Jesus. Horizontally, he reconciled us to God and he gives us the power to be reconciled to others. This is why I say that the answer to the race issues of life then And they were great, Jew and Gentile. Are you kidding me? The hatred, the opposition. The answer to the race issues of life then and the answer to the race issues now and all other issues in our culture for that matter, the answer is Jesus. This is why, this is why any competing worldview or organization will always fall short in their ability to bring peace and reconciliation. They don't have the power to do what Jesus does. And I'll just lean in here and call it what it is. Critical race theory in any other applied postmodernist worldview, like any worldview that we're ever introduced to, before we embrace any part of it, we have to make sure that we do as Paul said and make sure, according to 2 Corinthians 10.5, that we are taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Jesus. We have to make sure that we are not, Hebrews 13.9, 1 Timothy 1.4, led astray by various kinds of strange teachings and controversial speculations. And we have to funnel and filter everything through the gospel of Jesus Christ first and foremost. We should be very careful. We should be very careful to embrace movements, employ terms, and use language, especially in our day, that intentionally divides. That's not of Christ. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wrote, secular modernism has tried to get the fruits of the Jesus message without the roots. It can't be done. Christianity was the original multicultural society committed to caring for the poor and to sharing a common life across racial boundaries. Trying to recreate a society like that without Jesus leading the way is like trying to type with your fingers together. Jesus is the answer. Sounds simplistic, doesn't it? Like you would expect the pastor and preacher to say this. But I'm telling you, The answer to prejudice, to racism in any form, the answer to the struggles that we see in our society, 
The bitterness that we see that exists between people, the anger, the hatred, the answer to the injustices we see and witness. You can tell me I'm oversimplifying it all day long, but the answer to these things is Jesus. He's the only hope we have in bringing true reconciliation and peace between the races. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Only Jesus can redeem and plant within us the ability to repent of heart issues like pride and prejudice that fuel racism, which only brings separation and death. Only Jesus can kill the hostility. What we see in scripture is when we trust Jesus, we're given a new identity, we're we're called in Christ. When we trust Jesus, we're given a new family. This is the church, what's referred to as the third race, if you will. When we trust in Jesus, we're given a new citizenship. It's called heaven. When we trust Jesus, we're given this new ministry. It's called reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our job as Christ followers is to be instruments in God's hands, modeling reconciliation and preaching reconciliation. We preach peace through Christ. And therefore, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, the hostility that exists in people's hearts is broken. It's done away with. It ceases. But it only happens through the gospel. This is what makes the message of Jesus so powerful. It's unique. Only the message of Jesus offers grace and forgiveness. It's unique. It's it's universal. It speaks to and it is for every person, every tribe, every nation, every race, every ethnic group. You go back to the sons of Noah, Ham, who went to North Africa. You go to Acts chapter 8. Is the the gospel for people from North Africa? Who does Philip meet in Acts chapter 8? The Holy Spirit leads him to an Ethiopian eunuch with spiritual questions. Philip leads him to Christ, baptizes him, and sends him back home. The gospel's for everyone. Is he for the descendants of Shem, those of Middle Eastern descent? You read the Gospels. Go to Acts chapter 9, where a man named Saul of Tarsus is transformed by Jesus. And you see in a minute that the Gospels for Shem and his descendants is for all people groups. What about Japheth and the peoples of Asia Minor and Europe? Does the Gospel work for them? You go to Acts chapter 10, and you see a centurion there that is reconciled to Jesus. He and his whole householders say, the Gospel is for every single person who will believe by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel works for everyone. That's why I say he's the answer to the race issues of our day.
There's not one person outside of his love. There's not one person outside of his power to transform and reconcile them to God and one another. You just take a tour of the Bible from Genesis to the Psalms, to the prophets, to the gospels, to the acts of the apostles, to the letters culminating in Revelation. We saw it in verse five. People from every tribe and language and ethnicity and race around the throne worshiping God. There'll be no racism in heaven. According to 1 Peter chapter one, there's only one amazing race and Peter calls it a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Again, some have called this a third race. It's this new race that comprises the church. It's Christ's blood that makes us family. To quote pastor and author Derwin Gray, one of the most compelling realities of Jesus' saving work is that his grace creates a new race. A new race walked out of the tomb with Jesus. Though we are different colors with diverse cultures, the red blood of King Jesus runs through our veins, making us family. And to that, I say amen and amen and amen a million times over. So we see race as God sees it and intended it. And while there's no racism in heaven, we would be foolish to say that there's no racism now. And it's our responsibility as Christ followers to continue fighting and working, striving toward, praying like crazy to ensure that where we live and where we work and where we worship, there won't be racism there either. And so in closing, what are some things that we can do how can we work to see just that, that our church for sure, our sphere of influence, the pockets in which we live and work and play, how can we, what can we do to ensure that we are modeling this Revelation chapter five vision, working to maintain a spirit of unity where there isn't division and pride and prejudice? Well, the first thing we can do is simply this, consider others. This is the essence of the Christian life. It's the call to die. That life is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. You know, a great series to do in the future would just be a, a series on the one another statements in the Bible. You know there's over 50 of them? Prefer one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Be at peace with one another. Be kind to one another. When it comes to this very sensitive issue of race, we don't begin with our opinions and our rights. We begin with a posture of humility and we consider others, their feelings, their desires, their wishes, their life experiences, their struggles. We're to consider others more significant than we consider ourselves. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. Paul wrote the Philippian church, Philippians chapter two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others have this mind among yours which is yours in Christ Jesus 
consider others. Back during COVID in 2020, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder in May, like many of you, I was distraught at what I saw and what I was seeing take place in our country. Civil unrest and just the hatred and bitterness and vitriol that was being espoused on both sides. And I just had a desire personally to begin studying the civil rights movement of the past. I figured there was no better place to start than with Martin Luther King Jr. And so I picked up his authorized biography. I'd never read it before. And in his biography, it had in it his letters from a Birmingham jail. King was arrested for a peaceful protest and he was put in jail and some white pastors had gotten together to write an op-ed. And essentially what they were telling King was to slow down, you're going too fast. This movement needs to wait. King read these letters and he realized that there was very little empathy from these pastors. And so he wrote a letter from his prison cell, letters from a Birmingham jail. And I want to read a portion of it to you. It's lengthy, but I think it's helpful as we talk about having empathy. He writes, perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an influent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-county drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes the N-word, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title of Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Just arguing for empathy. Now, we've come a long way since 1619, 1776, and even the 1960s. We still have a ways to go. Again, just calling for empathy. And we can speak the truth in love. And, and no one, according to Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 18, should be judged or held accountable for the sins of their parents or their grandparents. If we want to see racism end, and a Revelation 5 vision come to fruition, then we have to begin by considering others, empathizing with others. And this starts with genuine friendships. And just listening to people who look different than us with care and concern. 
Tony Evans writes, we must begin with friendships with people who are different from us. We must intentionally connect as families and partners. We must demonstrate that we are willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. Jesus laid aside privileges and power to redeem us. He is our example of humility and sacrifice. A good starting point is to ask, how can I personally put the needs of my brothers and sisters above my own? So we consider others. But secondly, if we're to fight for this Revelation 5 vision and against this enemy that wants to destroy any semblance of it, we need to challenge prejudices. As Christ followers, we have an obligation to stand up for any injustice we see. That's what we did last week. We stood up for life and we spoke on behalf of those who have no voice and can't speak for themselves. The greatest command in scripture is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we see our neighbor being abused, cheated, taken advantage of for any reason, especially, especially for the color of their skin, that's a line in the sand for us. The scripture says, Psalm chapter 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God's, God, he cares about justice. It's part of his holy character. He's a just God. And where we see injustice and where we see prejudice, we need to open our mouths and speak and roll up our sleeves and get to work. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amos 5, 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And our desire for the glory of God to be on display through all races and people groups to see them reconciled to him and praising him forever and ever for racism be eradicated, we have to consider others first. We have to challenge our prejudices. And then third and finally, we have to celebrate our differences. I learned this lesson concerning my marriage years ago. I learned that I don't need another me in my life. I need Debbie Stevens. And our differences shouldn't bring separation, but celebration. We are church. 1 Corinthians 12. One body with many parts and we need one another and our differences help us make a difference for Christ. Listen to, listen to David Platt, what he wrote in his book, Counterculture, for the gospel doesn't deny the obvious ethnic culture and historical differences that distinguish us from one another. Nor does the gospel suppose that these differences are merely superficial. Instead, the gospel begins with a God who creates all men and women in his image and then diversifies humanity according to clans and lands as a creative reflection of his grace and glory in distinct groups of people. In highlighting the beauty of such diversity, the gospel thus counters the mistaken cultural illusion that the path to unity is paid by minimizing what makes us unique. Instead, the gospel compels us to celebrate our ethnic distinctions, value our cultural differences, and acknowledge our historical diversity, even forgiving the way such history may have been dreadfully harmful. Our differences don't weaken us. They strengthen us. And as we are united in Christ, it makes the differences between us that much more beautiful. You know, in 2020, I began to get phone calls and texts in the summer months asking me, hey, have you given your resume to Champion Forest? Hey, does Champion Forest know about you, hey, I'm turning your name into Champion Forest. You were looking for a pastor. 
And I never reciprocated. I would simply usually just send a thumbs up because I just figured that God had my cell phone and email and address and if he wanted to get me here, he knew how to do it. But after about the fifth or sixth text message and phone call, I went into my office there in Dallas and I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check out what this Champion Force is all about. And I went into my office there at the church and I locked the door. And <laughs> I went online and COVID was taking place, so you weren't meeting as a church, so I just pulled up what I could and I pulled up a worship event, much like it's gonna happen here on September 25th, our night of worship where the church comes together. And I pulled it up and I started watching it. And what I saw, black, brown, white, young, old, all together, lifting up and praising Jesus. And I'm telling you, God in that moment turned my heart. I said, I could, I could pastor Champion Forest. And I'm so glad you called me here. And here's my commitment to you that we'll keep working toward Revelation chapter five. That we will strengthen and build on what's already in us and that we will work and pray and labor like crazy to focus on what matters most and that is pointing people and reaching people all people for Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.